This week, we continue a series of interviews with participants in the Pedagogies of Care project. In this episode, we discuss the myth of the super teacher and the importance of focusing on self-efficacy, being human, and being reasonable with ourselves and each other. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Jessamine Newhouse. Jessamine is the Interim Director of the SUNY Plattsburgh Center for Teaching Excellence and a professor in the History Department at Plattsburgh. She specializes in the study of pop culture, gender studies, and teaching and learning. Jessamine is a recipient of the State University of New York Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. She is also the author of Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers, which she talked about on one of our earlier podcasts. Welcome back, Jessamine. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Today's teas are... I am drinking anything and everything with caffeine all day long, every day, since March. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> and I am drinking a ginger peach green tea, which is, I think, my fifth or sixth cup of tea today. I've got the Irish breakfast going today. You notice my caffeine choices are definitely on the higher end lately, too. <laughs> the powerhouses of tea. Caffeine has been extremely helpful in the last couple of months. <laughs> What's in your teaching tool belt? Some caffeine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've invited you here today to talk about your contribution to the Pedagogies of Care project, which we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts. Could you tell us a little bit about your contribution to this project? Sure. It's called Pedagogy Nerds Assemble, Battling Big Teaching Myths During Troubled Times. And it's really about encouraging faculty teaching self-efficacy in the face of so much uncertainty and trauma and loss and struggle now and in the foreseeable future. It also takes the kind of little bit of the snarky tone that I enjoy adding to the scholarship of teaching and learning, kind of <laughs> real talk, to empower faculty to not buy into certain myths that can really interfere with our ability to appreciate our unique ability, our unique contributions to student learning and student success. And mine is in the form of a recorded PowerPoint presentation. I know the project has taken different kinds of format to try to be as accessible as possible. So I'm very comfortable with PowerPoint. I definitely do not like recording a video of myself. I just did the first one yesterday because I have a feeling I'm going to need to do it more often in the semester to come. And it was just as awful as I imagined it could be. <laughs> For the PowerPoint, I have a little picture of myself on the slide, but just my voice. It sounds like something that we really need. Like self-efficacy is something that in a time when we're really stressed is something that we all need more, but also it's hard to feel like you can empower people to feel like they can empower themselves. Do you have any tips that you can share with faculty about things that they can be thinking about? 
Well, I don't want to give away all the myths so I can build interest in the project, but one of the myths of the three that I tackle in the presentation is the super teacher myth and fighting that super teacher myth, the impossible ideals of the incredibly charismatic professor who magically helps students learn just by being entertaining. That myth is really, really persistent. And I think the more we can encourage people to recognize that that exists, even maybe at an unconscious level, but to really call it out and recognize it. And that goes a long way towards seeing, oh, so here are the ways I can help students keep learning, even in these traumatic and troubled times. I had a crisis pretty early in the shift to emergency remote instruction because I had not taught online before, and I was really struggling with being present to students and communicating to students because as an introvert who had retreated to her house to replenish her teaching energy, I suddenly found myself needing to open up communication to students at home while my beloved family, who I wanted to throttle, was humming and buzzing around me. And I had to be more accessible and communicate and present to students all things I'd learned how to do in person pretty well as part of my teaching persona and to be effective. But I didn't know how to do it online. And I was lamenting on Twitter, I suck at this. I'm never going to be good. And Flower Darby, a scholar of online teaching and learning, reminded me it took you a long time, like it does for everybody, to learn how to teach effectively in person. The same is true for this new format, this new platform. And it was that super teacher myth, I should be able to do it suddenly, even though I'd never done it before. So fighting the super teacher myth would be one of my top pieces of advice, I think. I think one of the things that you're pointing out that's important to remind everybody as we're planning for fall and new platforms is there's a learning curve to anything that's new. And so if, if you're having to learn the LMS or a new piece of technology or whatever, the faculty member needs to do that, but so do our students. So we need to build in some of the time and space to allow ourselves to do that as well as our students. And they know when we're not comfortable or if we haven't built up those skill sets too. So being real with students about where we're comfortable and where we're not is also not a bad thing. Being human is important. No, and actually it can model for students having a growth mindset and that learning takes time and it requires making mistakes. And as hard as it is, as difficult as learning is, especially in crisis conditions, especially in the context of trauma and loss, learning is also why we academic nerds and scholarly geeks got here in the first place. I know it's helped me a lot this semester in the midst of the struggle and this pain to be able to look for things that I'm learning about teaching and I'm learning about my students and maintaining a growth mindset about my own pedagogical practices, remembering that it always takes a lot of practice, takes experience, takes reflection, but feeling like I was able to learn something that always makes things better. That makes my nerdy heart happier. (laughs) I think a lot of faculty have experience learning in ways that many people hadn't learned since grad school in terms of making an adjustment. Some people found it easy. The people who are already teaching online generally found the transition at least smoother than it was for other people. But for people who were used to only teaching in the classroom, this was a pretty traumatic experience, as it was for many of the students. 
I was just looking through some comments I got from my students this semester, and some of them said I didn't sign up for an online class because I really didn't like it. And they said the same thing in class right before we made that transition. So it's been a learning experience for all of us. And maintaining that growth mindset, I think, is really helpful. How can we help students do that? I know you talked about that in your book as well as in your project. Well, kind of what I was just saying before, one thing I found helpful is really the modeling portion, especially with the online aspect. And it was helpful with my students, first of all, to clarify this semester, this is not an online class. This is emergency remote instruction. And we're looking to finish the semester the only ways we can in this crisis condition. And then just like we were mentioning before, I also was very clear and upfront about things I was learning how to do. And I've mentioned it a couple of places now, so it's getting a little less embarrassing, but I'll admit it's still embarrassing. One thing that I was forced to learn how to do was have students submit assignments electronically. I was still making them print out a hard copy of their paper and turn it in, even though for years I knew I should not be doing that. I knew it made more sense to have them submit it online because I like to scaffold it. So I always said, so I have to see my previous comments. It totally made sense. Plus, they didn't have to pay for the printout, which was a real hardship for some of my students. So I was finally forced to learn how to do it. And I told students, because I'd made a big deal at the beginning of the semester, I know this is old school and I am being an old Gen X lady here, but can you please print out your assignments? I'm really sorry about the extra step. And then halfway through, I said, okay, well, we're all going to do this together and I'm going to learn how to use the Moodle Dropbox. And I messed it up several times. The settings were wrong and students couldn't submit. And they were so understanding. A couple of students said this to me, I know you're just learning how to do this, so it's okay. And it was kind of like modeling that and being clear about this was the technology was new to me and trying to be flexible with it. It kind of forced me to also rethink things like I have this really harsh and firm deadline. Well, yeah, except you messed up the Moodle Dropbox parameters, so you can't do that anymore. I think one of the things that your story illustrates to some extent is that breaking down that one myth that you had just talked about, the super teacher, that by showing that we're learning and that we make mistakes, it also shows students that the learning process includes making mistakes. And so it's not a terrible thing to have that occur. I know that when I've struggled with things in class before, the students really respond to knowing like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Let's see if we can figure it out. And the more you can indicate that you're not some encyclopedia, <laughs> the more helpful it is. Yeah. I had a lot of students clearly very hesitant and fearful about going online. So helping to demystify that a little bit, I think was helpful. What are some of your takeaways from this semester moving into the fall? For me personally, definitely kind of building on what I was just saying, being able to better utilize some of our learning management systems to achieve the pedagogical goals that I've always wanted to do. There are some very effective tools that I just had not utilized much before because I was doing face-to-face. -face. One example I can think of is I live for discussion. That's my favorite part of class. And having students discuss, I try to keep my own pie hole shut as much as possible. <laughs> and there are ways to structure at least some discussion. Even if you're doing a face-to-face -face class, you can also include some discussion in your learning management system that's more inclusive. 
that will encourage what I hear from faculty lived experiences and what I'm starting to read about is that there's ways a good online discussion can increase student participation from people who, for whatever reason, are hesitant to participate in face-to-face discussions. Somebody I know who works with students with English as a second language said when they were forced to switch to online discussions, they started to hear so much more from students who had been hesitant about participating in face-to-face discussions. So my personal takeaway is definitely when it helps me achieve the pedagogical goal that I would have in any format, I should be able to use some of the online learning tools that are out there. For faculty at large, I guess I would say two things. One, I saw a lot of pain and struggle as people were forced to give up things that had worked really effectively for them in the classroom. There's a real loss there. That's just one of many, many losses that faculty themselves were experiencing. And of course, in our personal lives during this crisis, but also as teachers, the switch was pretty traumatic in many ways. So that kind of emotional component and being aware of what we lost and ways that the uncertainties that we're facing really are going to take a toll day to day, class to class. And the other big takeaway, I think I saw a lot of faculty and read about a lot of faculty really reflecting for the first time, what are we grading? How are we going to assess student learning? That really rose to the top among the faculty here. How can we possibly assess student learning? They're just going to cheat if they're at home with their book and having it shoved in your face. Well, what do you want them to learn? What are they trying to learn and how are you going to be able to assess that? So really deep and difficult reflections on assessing student learning. That type of reflection can result in improved practice no matter how we're teaching in the future, I think. Yeah, for sure. I just want to give one little shout out here to that term, pedagogies of care, because I do think there's some misunderstanding about it or assumptions that it means just being completely and utterly touchy-feely and a lessening of academic rigor. And that's not the case. As I talk about in Geeky Pedagogy and have talked about a lot in my own personal experience, you can express care for student learning in a wide range of ways. You don't have to be the extroverted, extra warm, motherly, fatherly professor. I am not that person. I'm very intellectual. And with students, I keep it really professional. But I'm always getting feedback that she cares a lot. Professor Newhouse cares so much. It's because I'm totally fascinated with their ideas and their learning, and I do everything I can to help them learn. So pedagogy of care, first, for students, means clearly conveying to students that you want them to succeed. And that can take all kinds of different forms. The other thing in my contribution to the project that I emphasize about the pedagogy of care is that it extends to faculty as well. And we really could all stand to be a little bit kinder and gentler to ourselves and to each other in these extraordinarily difficult times. The pedagogy of care extends to our own learning and not, I flunked, I flunked this semester of teaching, I sucked. No, be as kind to yourself. I have repeated this to a number of people over the past four months, like just talk to yourself the way you would to a struggling student that you want to succeed. You know, you're trying, keep going, you can do it. Don't give up. 
this is an obstacle and it's hard, but you're learning. Talk that way to yourselves too and try to extend it to colleagues if you can. I think that one thing that I heard a lot of faculty talking about in relationship to this idea is what they need for self-care and what they actually need and be able to kind of articulate it on a day-to-day basis beyond just the crisis. But there's competing interests of like family and work and home space and workspace and what have you. And I think people are realizing what kind of time they need for different things to feel balanced because everything got so out of balance, (laughs) went from one extreme to another. Oh my gosh, yes. I wrote about that. I had an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and it was talking about being an introvert working from home. And contrary to this kind of knee-jerk, oh, introverts have it so great now because they get to be at home. Well, except that there could be other people there as well. (laughs) And demanding, finding, resting out some solitude when you're working from home was, to me, really vital. And it was not easy at all. Stressful. Yes, I remember reading that article and thinking, yes, all of these things. (laughs) (laughs) We have a system at my house now, and that system is really helpful. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, structure. Yeah, and I live with two off-the-charts extroverts, like off-the-charts. And normally that works pretty well for us as a family, but during this situation, no. Social isolating, like our needs were diametrically opposed. I need more time alone. I need more human contact. Yeah, it's been rough. It's been rough. (laughs) We'll include a link to your article in the show notes as well. Okay, thank you. So you've picked a great time to be taking over a teaching center. Just the status quo, same old, same old, nothing really big going on. So could you talk a little bit about what you're planning to help prepare faculty for the uncertainty of the fall semester? Sure. It's a great question. It's definitely a uniquely challenging time to be trying to revitalize a teaching and learning center on a small rural campus with very limited resources and like most state schools facing some really severe financial and student enrollment problems like maybe forever altering some structures. So it's tough. There's a lot of managing of expectations and emotions. I think the advice that I've gotten by far the most and makes the most sense as well is the importance of building connections and building communities on campus and reaching out to a wide variety of stakeholders, including students, and really trying to foster pedagogical communities of practice on campus. So not trying to Again, with the superhero theme, not trying to fly in and say, I'm going to fix everything, but instead trying to encourage sharing of ideas, sharing of resources, support for each other at this difficult time. We have a very small technology enhanced learning unit. It has one instructional designer, but we are collaborating a summer programming and working together. I'm just trying to help everyone I guess, really cultivate that growth mindset we were talking about and try to approach this as an opportunity for learning. I won't say silver lining. That's not how we want to frame it. But there is this opportunity because every campus has a small group of people who are bought into faculty development from day one. And they're at every workshop and they want to take every offering and they're your biggest fans. Then there's a small group who are going to actively oppose faculty 
development in any way, shape, or form, and will never ever come to your stupid, pointless workshops for any reason, not for love or money. But then there's this whole middle population who you could maybe attract them. They could go to one workshop and find it useful and maybe go to another one. Well, that population in the past three months has just shot into a whole new world. And I have had, just in the past couple of months, I've been the teaching fellow for the CTE and then just starting this gig as the interim director. So I was doing some things with the CTE and I saw more faces and heard from more people who had never darkened the door of the Center for Teaching Excellence appear and ask me questions and show up because I think it's not just personally, I don't know what to do, but suddenly everywhere, like literally everywhere, are professors saying, I could use some assistance with this. I'm not sure what to do. Like for the first time in ever, there's this like cultural acknowledgement that I don't know everything. Like that's a major leap for academics to be like, well, yeah, maybe I don't know everything here and I could use some assistance. But everybody was saying it. Everybody was doing it. So there's this opportunity to keep building on that and to offer assistance and encourage that growth mindset about their own pedagogical practices to a whole group of people who have never thought about it that way before. So it's this precious opportunity. I hope I don't blow it. I think we all share those thoughts about hoping we don't blow it and getting Let's ready for this. Let's not put unreasonable expectations on ourselves. <laughs> but this is true not just for teaching. As human beings, we tend to do things as we've always done them, unless there's some compelling yeah. need to change. And when things don't work the way they used to, it forces us to reevaluate how we're doing anything. And then it's a great growth opportunity and it opens a lot of potential. It can be really difficult, as we've all been noticing. I do think it's also not to slam my beloved academic geeks, but I think it can be especially hard for scholarly experts. I mean, we were trained in graduate school. You don't reveal your vulnerable underbelly to the alpha academic or you'll get your throat ripped out. You always have to be the smartest person in the room. Like that's the goal of getting your PhD. And to back up and admit, well, wait, I could use some help with this. That's a big leap for a smarty pants who's used to their classroom kingdom where nobody ever questions their expertise and authority, which, by the way, is not every professor. It depends on your embodied identity. That is a big caveat there. But you do have this professorial authority and saying, I need help or saying, wow, what worked before isn't going to work here. That's a major leap. That's a big ask for many academics. And it can help break down that super teacher myth that you mentioned earlier. For sure. Yeah. I think along those same lines, too, it's like that same group of people is recognizing all kinds of barriers that students face that weren't so visible before. It's very, very true. So really like transitioning the perception of the ivory tower to something a bit different. And I actually really hope it sticks. Yeah, me too. It, that's been amazing, actually, the way I've seen that on my campus as well. And it was interesting because I was doing a department-based needs assessment before the emergency pivot. So I'd been talking to faculty about what they saw as teaching challenges and the student population. 
And then within a few weeks after our shift, I saw some of those same professors saying very different things about their students and seeing them in a very different way, like straight up saying, my students' lives are so hard. Like the obstacles and the lack of access to Wi-Fi, for example, that's a serious issue. Yeah. And it always has been. So yeah, it really did. It's humanized, I think, is the term I hear some people saying it's humanized our teaching in new ways, for sure. And that could be a reach sometimes, like I was saying, I am very intellectual. I don't have a lot of personal discussions with my students, but in these crisis situations, I was very clear about being worried about them and being concerned and hoping they were safe. And all my students appreciated it, but I knew some of them were like, this is Professor Newhouse saying, oh, I'm worried about you. Stay safe. Professor Newhouse, really? So yeah, humanizing our interactions is important. I hope that's a message or a lesson that continues through into the future. Me too. And I think it's worked both ways, that I think a lot of students have seen some of the challenges their professors have faced, not just in terms of using the technology or teaching in a new format, but in terms of having children or pets or other things, or having technology issues or having access issues themselves, where someone might be using a video game or something similar, yeah. cutting into the bandwidth. Many faculty have reported to us that their students have expressed concern, asking if they're okay and encouraging them to stay safe and so forth. I think it's also along those same lines brought to light some of the invisible barriers that contingent faculty have being at multiple institutions or the incredible workload that they've been asked to bear without really any compensation for the time and effort and energy that's gone into it. Yeah, for sure. Our institution has provided loaner computers and other types of technology to both students and faculty. And an interesting phenomenon was that there were more faculty who requested computing equipment and other tools than there were students even. They provided a good deal of it to both, but some of those barriers are not just for students, especially our adjuncts who often are struggling to get by. For sure. I was just going to reference, and you can put this in the notes too, Kate Denial, a historian who wrote a very well-known essay. I'm hoping she'll write a book advocating a pedagogy of kindness. And I definitely saw how effective that can be this semester for me personally, but I also saw with a lot of other faculty for the first time, really seeing what a little bit of flexibility and a little bit of kindness, again, not lessening academic rigor, but bringing in specifically some of that humanizing kindness, how effective that can be. And actually, on a similar note, The advocates of ungrading have gotten a big boost as well, because I've seen and read a lot of faculty saying, wow, you know, once I told my students pass fail, for example, wow, their final projects were so great. Like they actually did what I wanted them to do and learn what I wanted them to learn. Once the stress and anxiety and kind of false dichotomies, I guess, of grading were taken off the table. So there's some real possibilities there. We've talked quite a bit about things that we should be focusing on in terms of getting ready for the fall, but what are some things we should probably avoid as either faculty or professional developers in preparing for the fall semester? I think a big one is to not ignore or try to just sort of skip over the trauma and the loss that people experienced and also not play like who had the worst trauma or who had the worst loss. In all kinds of ways, we experience 
losses. We experienced trauma. And the way trauma works, the way loss and grieving works is even a small loss can be very difficult because your brain and your heart and your soul are trying to process all your losses and all previous grief and loss. I know I always love graduation. And even though I sit there, it's very long, it's very hot, and <laughs> it can feel like a chore at times. But the commencement ceremony is so meaningful it's for everybody, but especially for first-generation students and their families. And we tried to fill in a little bit with some online messages and some online rituals. And I started to watch and just started crying. And I'm like, what is this? What is happening here? And it's a loss to not be able to engage in that ritual. It's not the world-ending loss, but it's a loss. And it's a trauma, and people are going to arrive to classes in late August, whatever format it is, with all those things having really just happened to them. Faculty, students, administrators. I mean, everybody's gotten a really raw deal this semester. And that's not just going to be magically fixed, even if somehow we're back to exactly where we were. And all the face-to-face classes are in session as they were planned, and everything's fine again. But what happened this semester is still going to be there. I think that's a really good reminder. Our students are going to be changed and will be different. And I think in the moment of this semester, a lot of students weren't able to process what was happening. So you might really have a really different experience with students in the fall when they've also had a little space to process what that experience was like and the things that they missed out on and are missing out on if they're online in the fall. Yeah, the first chapter in Geeky Pedagogy advocates for practicing awareness and really just being as fully mindfully present to the reality of what's happening around you. And I think that's always important, but I think it's going to be especially important in the fall. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change things that are bad, but to first really be cognizant and aware of what is happening, what is going on here. And the state of all our mental, emotional, physical states is going to be something we really have to pay attention to. I think that'll really shift what first days of classes look like in the fall. Yeah, for sure. The uncertainty remains. We don't know what's going to happen. And we can put plans in place, but we just don't know. And that's... Terrifying? Yeah. (laughs) For people who love to plan. And I had really fooled myself. You could see it in my book, too. I've attained a new enlightened state where I can roll with the changes and you got to be aware of stuff. But then as soon as my world was severely disrupted, no, it was all gone. Just zip, gone. Emotions do have a lot to do with how we learn and process things. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, emotional learning, yeah. (laughs) As you know, we always end with a question, what's next? A question that we're all thinking about pretty much all the time. Please tell us. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's crazy. Because I have been working on a project, an anthology of insights into effective teaching from women, marginalized, and underrepresented faculty. It hasn't been suspended, but I extended the deadline not having the bandwidth and assuming potential contributors also just utterly overwhelmed. And then I guess it's like day by day, what can maybe help a few people on campus teach effectively? And of course, how am I going to prepare my own class to be as resilient and flexible as possible for the fall? And just on a personal note, what about my child? He just finished his first year of college. 
it was not a overwhelming success. I mentioned last time I was here that he is a lackadaisical student, and he had many of the challenges that first-year college students face. And then, of course, this semester has been a disaster. He was one of those students who said, I don't want to do an online class. He's an extrovert. He's very social. So we're not sure what's going to happen for him in the fall. So those are all the uncertainties awaiting us. I first heard about the Pedagogies of Care Project when one of the people participating posted a picture of the Zoom screen with all those people in it. And I recognized all of them, and many of them had been guests on our podcast. So the initial image didn't talk about what it was for. It just said a gathering of present and future authors from West Virginia University Press. And it looked like a really impressive group of people. So we're very much looking forward to this project. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. They're really some of the smartest people I've ever met and definitely the best collaborators I've ever had. It's a unique experience being part of that series. I've never had a group of scholars who've kind of come together and really formed a supportive and encouraging community. It's just amazing. I've never experienced anything like it. And this project, I think, is a good example of how the series at West Virginia University Press, edited by Jim Lang, is unique to not just the scholarship of teaching and learning, but to scholarship, period. Because I've been in various series and journals and stuff, but there's never been a sense like this is a real pedagogical community of practice where ideas are debated and shared and each scholar is really supported. And I'm really incredibly grateful and proud to be part of it. And that also shows up in the Twitter conversations that take place. For those who don't follow the authors there, we strongly encourage that. Absolutely, yes. Definitely, that's how we found out about this project. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us again. It's always great to talk to you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. <laughs>